All right, everybody. Let's uh, let's go ahead and get started, and we'll let others join us as they come. Uh, so today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a little summary of where we've been the last two weeks, and then um, real short, and then we'll jump into one question today that I think will give us plenty to discuss about what's at stake in this question and why this question is important. And then we'll have tons of conversation around that question, and then we'll talk about what we're doing next. All right. But first, uh, let me let me leave us in prayer. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your church and this, uh, your word, and the chance to think about it and take it seriously and uh, hide it in our hearts and minds together. So as we convene this meeting, we affirm your presence here. We confer, um, we confer on each other a blessing even that we would be blessed as we do this and we consecrate this time to you. We pray you would meet us by your spirit for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, first week we talked about sort of uh, this text that we're dealing with, which is Romans 1, uh, 18, basically, through the end of chapter 3. And we read it through and we just, we, we got out all the, the questions we had and ways that we'd heard it taught and preached before and sort of just suss that out. Then last week, we talked about uh, the context and background of the letter, which I've kind of I've summarized here, but the letter was written um, after Jews who'd been expelled from Rome came back to Rome, and they came back to a church, house churches that were being run uh, in part or almost at, in total by Gentiles, and that was a record scratch for them. It was a big surprise for them. That's that's amazing place. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. All all God's creatures are welcome here. <laughs> um, and so Paul's right into a situation where Jews and Gentiles are trying to get along. He's trying to help them uh, reconcile and how to live together. He also is writing because he wants to go to Spain, which is sort of the ends of the earth at the time. Something I didn't say last week. Spain was sort of. Beyond Spain, there was dragons, like that kind of thing. There just wasn't anything beyond Spain. So Paul wanted to get to the end of the earth, but he had a problem because uh, there was another class of people that lived there named barbarians. And barbarians uh, were considered awful by both the Jews and the Gentiles. So the pastoral problem was he had to get Jews and Gentiles to get along and them to, them to fund his mission to the barbarians. And he'd never met them before, so he had to build some rapport, some trust and esteem with the people in Rome so that they would actually listen to him and receive him, et cetera. So that's the work we did last week. Uh, this week, uh, there's a page right behind Clay um, that hopefully you grabbed on the way in. And there is a text on the back of that paper or the front, depending upon uh, the orientation, of the text we're going to just focus on today. Um, so we're going to read it again. All right. Uh, can I get a volunteer to read uh, 18? I'm, I'm sorry, 16 through 32 of chapter one. Somebody read that for us. With their Daniel. Yeah, great. So Daniel's going to read chapter one, verses uh, 16 through 32. 
And then can I get somebody to read chapter two verses, I think it's one through 11 you have on that page. Somebody do that for us. Spencer, Father Spencer. Great. All right. Daniel, uh, let, let me uh, let me just uh, preface what our conversation is going to be about today. Um, Daniel's going to read um, the first part and Spencer the second part. And there is debate from interpreters and scholars about who is speaking in chapter one. Who is this person that in chapter two then gets sort of judo chopped, right? And we'll talk about that and talk about the options. And then I'll propose a solution that we'll talk about in the coming weeks. So be listening for that and see what you notice. All right, Daniel, go for it. For I love the of the gospel. It is God's saving power for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteous, righteousness of God is revealed through faith. For faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustice, those who by their injustice trust in But what can we know about God explains that because God has made it for them? Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, visible though they are, have been seen and understood through the things God has made. So they are without excuse, for they know, for they knew God. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless hearts were darkened. They need to be wise and became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, images resembling the mortal human, the birds, or four footed animals, the reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the, gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies amongst, among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions, but he has exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also, the males giving up natural intercourse with females and consumed with their passionate desires for the other. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not submit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of injustice, evil, covetousness, and malice. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness, they are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet they not only do good, but even applaud others who practice them. Therefore, you are without excuse, whoever you are, and you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things, and yet you do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's judgment will be revealed. He will repay each or, he will repay according to each one's deeds. 
to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but injustice, there will be wrath and fury. There will be affliction and distress for everyone who does evil, both Jew first and Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, both Jew first and the Greek. For God shows their partiality. The word of the Lord. Right. Okay. So in general, uh, you can kind of see uh, the dynamic we're going to talk about. Paul uh, gives an argument in Romans 1, 18 through 32. And then in verse 2, or chapter 2, so in chapter 2, he's like, the person speaking in chapter 1 is guilty of the same things. Okay? Do you follow that logic there? That Paul's basically indicting. And the common interpretation here is that Paul is setting up uh, Jewish beliefs and Gentile beliefs and saying they're both wrong. They both need Jesus. Um, so in that interpretation, we're going to talk through three options we have for what's going on with this argument being made in chapter one. In that interpretation, then, chapter one, 18 through 32, is Paul summarizing what Jews believe. It's the Jewish way of seeing things. Have you heard that before? Yeah, this is, a, this is the dominant way of understanding this. There's a few problems with this, though, and I want to just talk about them, name them a bit, and talk about them with you. Um, <clears throat> the, <laughs> the biggest problem with this interpretation is that there isn't evidence that all Jews believe this. Um, for centuries, though, this was the interpretation. Guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and other Protestant reformers took Judaism to basically be about trying to earn God's favor, doing the law in order to make God pleased with us, right? Which was Martin Luther's kind of anxiety as a Catholic priest. He couldn't perform righteousness enough to allay his own shame and guilt, yeah? And so it's commonly thought among Protestant reformers, and even in many articulations of the gospel today, we may get into this in later weeks, that Romans 1, uh, 18 through 32 summarizes how Jews practiced Judaism. Um, but there have been studies done that show that this isn't a good summary of Judaism in whole. So there was a book in 1977 that came out by a guy named E.P. Sanders uh, titled Paul and Palestinian Judaism, and it really changed everything. Uh, Sanders, who's not a Christian, uh, read Jewish sources around the time of Christ. So from the closing of the Old Testament canon that we have, like Ezekiel through fall of the Jerusalem temple, it's typically talked about as Second Temple Judaism, from the rebuilding of the temple to the fall of the Second Temple. And what he found was a Judaism that he described as covenantal gnomism. Now, follow with me here. Uh, I'm going to quote from a book that I'm using uh, for some of this. And it's a book called Beyond Justification, Liberating False Gospel by John DePue and Douglas Candle, Campbell, which we're having an event uh, with the author. And I'll tell you guys about that as we um, at the end. Um, but here's a quote from the book. 
covenantal, so covenantal nomism. Covenantal names the fact that the vast majority of these Second Temple Jewish texts ascribe the relationship of the Jews with God to God's initiative. Covenants, like marriage, is constructed more in terms of kinship than legal documents. So uh, what, what Campbell and DePue are saying is the, the Jews in Jesus of time thought of themselves as in a covenantal relationship based upon God's initiative of moving towards them versus a contractual relationship based upon them performing the law and getting certain benefits from it. Yeah? Nomism is the Greek word for law, namos, right? So the reason why Sanders called Judaism covenantal nomism is because law then for Jews in Jesus' time wasn't so much how Jews earned God's favor or approval, but rather the law given to Jews was like the marriage vows in a wedding ceremony. So think of marriages today, then. Let's explore this a bit, right? Those of us who are married, when you gave your vows, did that earn you a spouse? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Right? So we don't honor and cherish and for better or for worse to earn a spouse. Right? The spouse comes towards us and we give each other, we give ourselves to each other in marriage. And then the vows are the ways that we keep covenant. See the difference there? Yeah. So then a contract, let's just talk about a contract and a covenant, because I think oftentimes in the Protestant reformers, they, they describe Judaism as though it's some sort of contractual legal thing. A contract is an arrangement between two parties that don't trust each other. Right? So I signed a contract when I bought my house, and it's legally binding, which means if I don't pay my mortgage, what? The bank can legally come after me for that. Right? So contracts exist between two parties that aren't based on trust. Contracts exist between two parties that need an external threat of some reprisals if it's broken. That makes sense? Whereas a covenant, a covenant is an arrangement between two parties that trust each other. So marriage is, a, is an entering into an arrangement, agreement where we mutually trust each other. So in the old way of then understanding uh, Jewish faith, the law of Moses was this legal contract binding Jews to God, and they were just chronically breaking it, right? In, a, in covenantal nomism, God moves towards Israel, elects Israel, calls Israel to be God's people, and then the law is given for, here's how you, for better and for worse, it with me. Make sense? Now, if you have questions about this, just raise your hand. We can talk about it in the moment, but I'll also leave room at the end to chat more about that. Okay, so if the Jewish faith is very diverse, and we're going to talk about how segments of the Jewish faith maybe fall into the, um, the more stereotypical way of thinking about it in some ways, but if Judaism is very diverse, most of Judaism is covenantal nomism. Uh, this presents, I think, a big problem for how the reformers framed Paul's gospel over and against Jews, right? 
this gospel, the reformer's gospel, is that Jews are trapped in legalism, right? And they're failing to keep the law perfectly, unable to be forgiven when Jesus swoops in and teaches Jewish people that they're not saved by works, they're saved by grace. Yeah? And, and it's through grace, by faith, that Jewish people and Gentiles are delivered from self-effort. Yeah? You tracking with me? Um, I think this misunderstands Judaism, and it misunderstands Jesus, who was Jewish. And we'll get back to that in a second. Okay? All right. Um, I, I, this is beyond the scope of this class, but I'll just make some assertions here, and we can ask, you can ask about them if you want. There was plenty of grace and forgiveness in Judaism. Plenty. Plenty. Just, just if you don't believe me, watch Jesus, a Jew, forgiving people before the cross. There was plenty of grace and forgiveness within Judaism. God didn't invent grace with Jesus. That's another way to say that. Um, the second thing is, in the reformer's mind, if this is a, a summary of the Jewish thing, then, then, then salvation is primarily about individuals trapped in legalism who need rescue. But Judaism as a religion, as a faith, is much more about um, a community of people elected to be gods. So yes, there's personal things within a community that you have to attend to, right? Each person in a community has responsibilities. But Judaism is less about getting individuals saved and more about God's election of a people. And that's tricky for us. We don't think like that. The reformers didn't think like that, right? And uh, finally, Paul didn't think about Jewish people this way. Uh, again, this is another class, but uh, there's great evidence uh, to suggest that uh, Paul was a Jew. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to be flippant here, um, but Paul uh, was a Jew. Um, there's very little evidence that, uh, hey, Becca, hi, Leah. You guys can knock out these chairs over here if you want. And um, Yep. Um, uh, so, so Paul was a Jew. There's very little evidence that something like Christianity existed distinctly from Judaism in the first century. So some of you know from like either Christian high school or, you know, Sunday school classes, that there were these different movements within Judaism, like Essenes and Zealots and things like that. And the Essenes, you know, lived out in the desert, the Qumran community. People think that that was an Essene community. Christians were like a denomination, really, within Judaism. It's, I mean, it's, that's anachronistic, meaning it's not entirely accurate. But no one would say that Presbyterians aren't Christian. And only Methodists are Christian. Right? Methodists and Presbyterians live in this, you know, big tent of Christianity. And that's that's how Paul thought of it. So Paul was Paul was a Jew. Um oh hi, yeah, thanks. Just say hey dude. Sure. 
Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, there are. Yeah. So, so Kylie, I got it. I got it. Kylie. Um, sorry, Kylie has an identical twin who's also been to our church. And so I always am calling her a sister's name. <laughs> um, I do forget names, but um, Kylie's like uh, PhD level. Um, yeah. So Mormons are, are Church of Latter-day Saints. Christians are are sometimes called not Christian by other Christians, right? Um, the denomination thing breaks down. I guess the big point is here is that there isn't evidence that Paul saw himself or early Christians saw themselves distinct from Judaism at this point. At this point, they didn't. Like Jewish denominations, like Jewish. Did other Jewish denominations what? Like see them as like not Jewish. We don't really know because we don't have writings from those communities about, you know, Jesus following Jews. Like we don't really have writings from the zealots talking about these people following Jesus. So we don't, we don't really. It's a good question. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. So another, one other problem with this, then, uh, if, if this is all the Jews in chapter one, is that if Paul is setting a trap, right? So in two, we have, therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are. We'll talk about this phrase in a bit. When you judge others for with the judgment you use, you yourself are judged. If Paul as a Jew is setting a trap for the Jews, what's the problem? He set the trap for himself. Like he's caught in the same trap, right? Or if a Jew reads this and says, that's not me or hears it and says, that's not me, then, then Paul set a trap that doesn't work. Because the Jewish person would say, well, that's not that's not me. I'm a covenantal gnomism dude. And this whoever this is, they seem really cranked up. Right? Right? Uh, this is, uh, Doug Campbell says this, not only uh, is this view of Judaism wrong, historically speaking, but it doesn't cohere with Paul's own views of Judaism expressed elsewhere. This is really important. For instance, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul does not critique disobedient Jews for being hypocritical or judgmental or for lacking self-awareness of their moral shortcomings, but rather for being disobedient to the gospel. In fact, he does not even criticize them for being lawbreakers. He instead implies they are following the law quite well. This is Romans 10, 2 and 3. Two, verses 2 and 3, you can look that up if you want. Paul also, this is parenthetically, Paul also elsewhere when he's describing his pedigree, I think it's in Galatians, says that he kept the law blameless. So there's evidence in Paul about Jewish people that you could keep the law, right? So we have to reckon with that if we're going to talk about Jewish people as not keeping the law and feeling awful about it. All right, keep going here. Um, he implies that they are following the law quite well. Thus, it is implausible that Paul is springing a rhetorical attack on, quote, the Jew as a stand-in for Judaism per se. For Paul to do so would mean that he defines Judaism in an innately judgmental and hypocritical way. That is, Paul would be saying that all Jewish, Jewish people necessarily are part of a system that, to a person, did not live up to themselves, but they nevertheless attack others on ethical grounds and are unaware of their own ethical shortcomings. Even if we grant that Judaism was indeed fundamentally a religion about works righteousness, given the sacrificial system and the many psalms confessing sins, 
it is quite apparent that Jews would actually possess quite the level of self-awareness. It is embedded in their own scriptures and liturgical practices. Only a rogue Jewish person might possibly lack awareness of their own moral shortcomings. So back to the logic of the criteria, since Paul himself has this self-awareness, as too would most other Jews at this time, then he along with the majority of Jews would again be able to escape this charge of self-condemnation, right? So Paul then, if he's speaking to all Jews, he's relying on them being un unaware, but Jewish scriptures are very aware of sin, exceedingly aware of sin, and deal with it through sacrifices and confessions and prayers of sin and giving thanks for forgiveness even in the Psalms, right? All right. One other problem <laughs> with this being all Jewish people, um, and, then, and then we'll talk about the second option here. And the other problem with this being all Jewish people is that uh, this way of speaking about Jewish people has led to some of the worst crimes and atrocities in human history. This is the anti-Semitic thing you brought up last week, Leigh. Um, and, and I'm going to say just a brief word about this that goes beyond this text. But because Jewish people were seen as legalistic, condemning, judgmental, all manner of hell has been justified to use against them, right? And we have anti-Semitic habits as Christians that we don't even realize, right? So one of them is calling, like, using the word Pharisee as a synonym for legalist. Yeah, I did that. I've, I've done that for years. And I think that's a common thing within the Protestant Reformation tradition is a Pharisee equals a legalist. Um, again, this is a whole different class, but that's just not fair to Pharisees. And in fact, many Jewish people today trace their lineage from Pharisees. Like they see the Pharisees as sort of their spiritual sort of um, fountainhead, right? From, from the temple, from the Judaism of Jesus's day. And they claim this isn't true. This isn't, we're not legalists. Right? Now it's true that Jesus has, some pretty fiery invective against Pharisees. Like he's got some pretty pointed words for them. Um, and I'm gonna use an analogy again, it's kind of like the Mormon thing. Apparently we can find ways around this, but I'm gonna use an analogy to sort of help us understand. I'm gonna move from what we understand to what we don't understand. Jesus, Jesus may not have been a Pharisee, but he was the closest, Pharisees were the closest analog to what he did and who he was. Meaning, in the Jewish world, in Jesus' day, you know, you've heard the word rabbi thrown around, like teacher. Rabbis came a little later than Jesus. So maybe rabbi was what people saw him as, but there's a lot of evidence that the people, that Pharisees did a lot of what Jesus did. Taught, tried to bring reform, et cetera, et cetera. So Jesus was uh, really close to who Pharisees were, and it's like, it's like, um, because they're so close together, they can get away with a more sustained critique of each other and more pointed critique than people farther away, right? So it's, so for instance, this is the example, um, one black person calling another black person the N-word is way different than me calling that black person N-word, right? 
Um, if I have a friend who's complaining about their brother and they call him a slur, like a prick or something, that's different than me calling their brother a prick, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a, a proximity that allows for a harsher critique than the in crowd that doesn't exist, that same freedom to critique like that doesn't exist with an out crowd, especially when the out crowd has for several millennia oppressed Jewish people. So that's just my brief thing of like saying, you know, let's stop calling legalists Pharisees. I think there's better ways to talk about who the Pharisees were. And Jewish people experience it as anti-Semitic. Let's listen to them for a couple hundred years. <laughs> that's so. So the other problem with this interpretation is it's unfair to Jews. It's not how Paul talks about being a Jew. It would indict Paul as well, or it would need somebody who's completely unaware as a Jew in Paul's day for it to be that, and it's anti-Semitic. Now, all of that creates a big problem in my mind. It's hard to get around, but that's the dominant way Protestants and Catholics have read this text. I mean, that's tough. Should I keep going? Last questions. I'll keep going. Yeah, Great. All right. As a chat. Yep. Someone said, I'm experiencing the last Presbyterian or Yeah. It's a Presbyterian. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you guys hear that? That there's, there's an emphasis on covenantal theology in many reformed places, situations. And it's hard for me. To know exactly what that means for the person who's asking the question. But yeah, there are some Protestant traditions that use the framework covenant to understand a little better, like what God is, how God's relating to humanity, how Jews related to humanity, etc. We would have to suss out though, what does the gospel look like then? A lot of a lot of people in my experience who have covenantal theology still use kind of this anti-Jewish Jesus came to fix Judaism that had gone off the rails. Right. Or Catholics did this, ergo, Jewish people did this, ergo, this is what Jesus came to fix, which is typically basically what Martin Luther did. Right. I mean, that's a really caricatured, quick way of saying. It. So I would have to know more about that specifics, you know. But yeah, Isaiah. I was going to say, like, I grew up in the church that was very much read Romans and all of all in that sort of like realistic way. But I thought that like the covenant told us that we had clearly fixed. Like, that yeah, so so they didn't have a covenant, but we do. Right. Well, like Jews didn't get it, but we get it. No, we get it. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's a dominant way of reading this. And I think it creates lots of problems for us and creates lots of problems for Paul's theology. We could uh, but let me let me keep moving here. Because the second option, the second option is that <clears throat> It's not all the Jews, but that this is Paul talking about, uh, this is Paul speaking. That's not a different voice, it's Paul speaking. And let me point out a few problems with that, because this is the second option that people use. Uh, the first is, and as Daniel read this, there's this uh, shift in voice from verses 16 and 17 to verse 18, right? So there's second person plural verbs in the first 17 verses of Romans. 
And then it switches to third person, right? It's talking about you, and then it talks about them. There's a shift in, in focus. And then in 2-1, it's back to second person singular, right? So it kind of indicates there's like a, a, diff, there's a shift in voice happening in verses 18 through 32. Um, notice there's a there's a there's a tone shift too. Paul's talking in verses 16 and 17 about this this power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith for both Jews and Gentiles. God's righteousness is revealed. The one who is righteous will live by faith, right? So he goes from talking about God's righteousness is revealed, and what does verse 18 say? God's wrath is being revealed. Yeah. People who interpret this as Paul, this is one of the moves they'll make. Oh, the righteousness he's talking about in verse 17 is the same thing as the wrath in verse 18. That's one of those things that, that people just do and assume. And I think there's reasons to not do that. And I'll keep I'll keep talking about that. I'll keep going. Um, we, we might do a whole class on this, depending on how interested you are. This is a real nerdy thing. But... Um, if I were if I were talking about there's an there's ancient rhetorical clues. So ancient Greek didn't have quotation marks and paragraphs, but they had rhetorical cues that were well known and established in rhetorical schools about doing something called a speech in character, where where a person speaking would start speaking like somebody else. Right? We do the same thing orally. Like if I were to, if I had greeted you today and I had said, um, hey, welcome to the class. It's great to have you here. We're learning a lot. And I just want you to know a lot of people are saying this is the best class. <laughs> that I have all the best words. Other people are saying that, you know. And really, what do other churches have with their classes? Not much, really. There's not much to them, really. This class is fabulous, fantastic, huge, extremely huge. The women love it. The Latinos love it. The black people love it. People think this class will change church classes forever, really. Everyone's talking about it. That's just what I've heard. I've been hearing it more and more, really. People think it's going to happen. Those low energy people who don't like it. To be perfectly honest, they think they're going to try and shut our class down. They don't respect us. They are laughing at us. Not going to happen, okay? Not going to happen. All right. I did. What? All right. What, what just happened? Tell me, explain, explain to me. Explain to somebody who doesn't understand what I just did, what just happened. I was impersonating Donald Trump. It was probably the worst impersonation ever. Really, it was bad. Even, even a D-minus impersonation of Donald Trump, you understood what was happening. How? How did you understand that was happening? To your point, you don't have to do you don't have to do his voice. You don't have to do the hand motions. There's just a certain pattern that he uses with words that you know that it is his way of speaking. So yeah, even when you don't have the quotation marks, you kind of can tell what's in this. Yeah, yeah. So I did hand motions. I did a little bit of a voice, but there's a cadence. 
there's language, there's phrases, right? Yeah, all of that indicates that I'm, now let's, let's go one step further. All that indicates that I love Donald Trump? No, what does it indicate? What was I doing to Donald Trump there? Sarcasm, it was parody, right? How do you know I was doing parody? <laughs> That's a little more subtle, right? It's a little more subtle, but here's, you would have to know more about me to know I was doing parody. You would have to know other things I've said. Maybe if this was your first time at our church, you would have to listen to the rest of the class to get a sense of, was he being serious? Is that what he thinks? Right? Okay. We aren't the first culture that has done that. Parody, speech and character, I just went right into it. I didn't say, now I'm going to pretend like I'm Donald Trump. I just went right into it. You all knew I went into it, and then you knew when I went out of it. All right? We may spend a whole class on this because it's fascinating how ancient Greeks did this, but let me just show you a couple indications that that's what's happening here. Paul is doing a speech and character of another teacher, another teaching that he's going to parody and then counter. All right, let me show you how, if you care at all. All right, well, I'll just assume you do. Um, you're here for the class, here we go. Um, so in chapter 2-1, we already talked about this. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. In the English, we kind of get, oh, he's talking to that person who was talking in chapter 1. But there was something called uh, an apostrophe. And it's, it's a Greek indication that the person speaking is now speaking about somebody else. And it's known as a capping formula. So when you get to an apostrophe, and it, the Greek is, is this, therefore, inexcusable, you are, O oh man, each one. That O oh is the apostrophe. Whenever a Greek person says, oh, so-and-so, it's, it's known as a capping formula, and you have to back up and go, oh, somebody else was talking, and now the writer's addressing the other person who's talking. So it's, an indi it's a grammatical indication that Paul was doing something called a speech in character. Um, same with Romans 2 3. Yeah, just as we're talking about. Yeah. yeah, that's NRSV. Yeah, but if you, you can use uh, whatever other translation you want, and usually it indicates that, use it whoever you are or um, whoever this, it usually indicates in the English version that that's the case. Thanks, Andre. Um, same in verse 3. Uh, do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge, the, the Greek there is, suppose you, no, suppose you now this, oh man. So Paul indicates again, he's talking back, whatever. Um, and I, I could go in, there's more indications, right? This is a, this is a something called diophrenia. It's a, it's a diatribe dialogue where Paul's teaching in a back and forth way. He does this in 1 Corinthians 2 a lot. Yeah, yeah. So if Phoebe was indeed the reader, we know she carried it. There's some 
disagreement if she actually read it. But one of the reasons why Paul sends it with Phoebe and commends it to her, commends her to the church, is because Phoebe would have been the authorized interpreter, teacher, applier, and she would make sure whoever did read it noted those things. So whoever then read it, she would be sort of the, the director because she was Paul's authoritative presence in the Church of Rome, and she would know these things, right? Yeah, great comment, Tim. Uh, we talked about logically. Yeah, yeah, you just got to see that. Yeah, go, brother, go for it. So is it like everything, like the four words you were afraid, is that always like after they're switching back to themselves? Yeah. Yeah, Brooke's asking, you know, do we always get the apostrophe to go back to, to, to the change? And Tim Ludden asked about this last week. There's a couple scripts that some scholars have done about Paul, Paul keeps going back and forth uh, with this interlocutor. Um, and sometimes he parodies that person's stuff. So, for instance, um, notice that uh, in chapter one, it's the wrath of God that's being revealed against all this wickedness and unrighteousness. And then Paul says in 2.3, do you imagine, oh man, that when you judge those who do such things, yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Right? So this wrath is coming for you too. But then he says, or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? So Paul's actually then questioning this whole wrath of God being revealed with, and actually not that actually kindness and forbearance and patience, right? So maybe you want something different, oh teacher, than what you think other people are getting. You see that? And then, and then he says, he makes use of this wrath, right? I keep going to chapter one. But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul's like, this is who God is. This is what God's doing. But have it your way. This is what you're waiting for. Right? So he's like taking, he's like inhabiting this guy's thought and saying, well, you're going to, you're really going to get it then. If this is the God you want, are you sure that's the God you'll get? Are you sure you want to get that God? So things are happening like that. And we can talk more about that. But I guess, Kylie, um, there are other indications and clues in the text where Paul indicates that he's parrot, parrot, parroting the um, the argument of this teacher in chapter one, and then responding to it, parroting, responding to it. Yeah. So I thought about how to teach this, you guys. It's so tricky because we could do two classes on who this teacher is. Um, and maybe I'll just state a little bit like a, the hypothesis that most appeals to me here. And then we can circle back on it in another class if we want to actually dig into it. Um, there's a lot of overlap in chapter one with a book known as Wisdom of Solomon. Okay, Wisdom of Solomon is known as an apocryphal or deuterocanical book for Protestants. It was written in the Second Temple Judaism period. And there's a lot of overlap in themes and language. And so the people, some people say, well, it's not all the Jews, it's like, it's like wisdom of Solomon kind of teaching. It's like this person coming from this. But uh, my friend Andrew Lera, and I've been reading his dissertation, 
on this has read a lot of a guy named uh, Philo of Alexandria. You guys have heard of Philo? It's kind of a, a Jewish person living in Alexandria, Egypt. And there is incredible syntactic, linguistic, and logical argumentative overlap between Romans 1.18-32 and Philo's teachings. And so his hypothesis, he calls it a Philonic teacher or group of teachers who are proclaiming some, some version of Judaism or Christianity in Rome that Paul is countering. And it's, I mean, that's, we could talk way more about that. Just one other thing about that, because it's super cool. So Philo, Philo was a Jew who was interested in um, making, this may be unfair to Philo, because I'm not an expert in Philo, but he would do things like take the Roman virtues and show how Roman virtues were the same as Jewish virtues. So he was really keen on being like people who are virtuous in Roman society, like the, the virtuous heroes, are basically living a virtuous Jewish life. So I, I think of that as like trying to make Judaism acceptable in, in a Roman milieu, right? So that's one thing he would do. Uh, another thing he would do, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, and we don't have time to look at this in Philippians and Galatians, but it's fascinating. Paul talks about circumcision a lot. Remember that? Like if you if you get circumcised and you're, the gospel has meant nothing to you, how, how who's bewitched you, those kinds of things. Philo had this teaching that uh, the problem with a lack of virtue or wickedness or impiety or impurity was the passions or lusts, desires of the flesh. His solution to that was a morally efficacious circumcision. So we're going to get, this is PG-13 now. Um, and it's really hard for me to talk about this without talking about what a penis looks like. So gird up your ear holes. The normal circumcision of Jews in Paul's day took a foreskin that went over the tip and cut it back to like here. Um, yeah, you're fine. <laughs> Philo said, Philo said, um, what you need is a radical circumcision that would take the foreskin all the way off. Because it's that part of the foreskin that leads to moral depravity. So, I think that makes a lot of sense about how Paul talks about circumcision in his letters, that he's dealing with Philonic teachers who are talking about a circumcision that has, that has moral efficacy, meaning this is how you crucify lust of the flesh. You submit to this more severe circumcision. And Paul's like, no, it's by the Spirit. That's what he says in Galatians, right? So we see, the reason I bring that up is because, oh, when else can I talk about a penis at church? But also, I bring that up to say, I think Paul is dealing with philonic proselytes and evangelists, and he's trying to counter their teaching 
because they get they get a lot of things wrong, even if Paul would agree with most of these vices in this vice list. Right? So even if Paul, even if Paul would agree with some of the things in here, there's some key disagreement. Fallacies about yes. Isaiah, make sure you type that joke into the chat. Just so the people online make sure they can hear that. Um, all right, we don't have time for this. That's the name of the dissertation. <laughs> we don't have time for this, but let me just point out. There's a number of things in 18 through 32 that sound more like Philo than Paul. Okay? One of them is the vice list. The vice list in 29 through 31. This is from Andrew Lehrer's dissertation. Uh, I'll just read this. <clears throat> the authentic Pauline letters contain five other such lists. So 1 Corinthians 5, 10, 11. Romans 13, 13. 2 Corinthians 12, 20 through 21. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Um, and he compares those vice lists to this one. And this is what he this is what he says. Romans 1, 29 through 31 lists a total of 21 vices. Of the 21, however, only six appear in one or more of the other lists. So it's less than 30%. Alternatively, the other five lists enumerate a total of 28 vices. Of the 28, only six of those appear in this list. So of the six vices in 1 Corinthians 5, they appear, uh, I'm sorry. So at the same time, however, there's significantly more overlap among the other five vice lists. All of the vices in 1 Corinthians 5 appear in one or more of the other lists, as do five of the six in Romans 13, 13, nine of 11 in 2 Corinthians 12, 11 of 15 in Galatians 5, and 7 of 11 in 1 Corinthians 6. So what he's saying is, this vice list, even though Paul may agree with these as vices, he doesn't use these words elsewhere. And the words he uses elsewhere have a lot of overlap. So this is one of like a dozen things that go, hmm, what? That's interesting, right? So he summarizes, in short, Although the vocabularies of the other vice lists in the authentic Pauline letters exhibit a significant degree of overlap, the vocabulary in Romans 1, 29-31 is distinctly different. In short, not only is the vocabulary distinctly non-Pauline, it also is most non-Pauline precisely at the point where one would expect it to be most Pauline in the vice list. But the vice list does line up with words and concepts that Philo uses. All right. Now, and there's theology issues, right? Um, we can talk about that more in depth later. But all this to say, and then we'll have some time for questions. I don't think it's Paul's voice, and I don't think it's all the Jews' voice. I think there's good evidence in the book of Romans and outside in writings from Philo um, that there is, that Paul's uh, doing a diatribe or a dialogue with a Philonic proselyte teacher who's teaching in Rome or who has been in Rome and the teaching is present there. And he's doing it because remember we said that he needs trust and esteem. 
He begins his letter with this to demonstrate, this is me now speaking, his rhetorical theological chops to do a, a sophisticated takedown of somebody else's theology that is contrary to what he teaches. So rhetorically, it would be impressive and interesting and brilliant. And it would also then indicate to the Romans, Paul oh, might know he's, he's pretty good at this. So, all right. Next week, we'll look at uh, what this Jewish teacher believed, maybe, and why does, why does Paul uh, dialogue with him so much, and how does Paul's gospel differ from this guy's? That's an important thing, too, right? But first, let me just say, are there any questions or thoughts or observations about these three options? And maybe you want me to say more about something, et cetera. Brooke. Yeah, she's, uh, Brooke's asking, are there other places in the scriptures where uh, dialogue like this has happened? Um, yeah, give me a second. It... Have it in my notes. I, I could do it from memory, but I think it would be less helpful. So I mentioned First Corinthians before, Brooke, and most interpreters believe, um, yeah, this happens in First Corinthians all the time. So just as an example, First um, Corinthians six twelve, Paul says, "All things are lawful for me." but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In, in the NRSV, that all things are lawful for me are put in quotation marks because the translators are going, he's responding to a common argument made in Corinth. So Paul's parroting an argument and then responding to it, right? Another example is in 6.13, right afterwards. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then Paul says, and God will destroy one, both one and then the other, right? Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. All of us possess knowledge. Yeah, but knowledge puffs up and love builds up, right? So this dialogue thing happens frequently in the letters, um, but it, it usually is like a smaller bit where Paul is naming, naming something and then responding to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Kylie says, NRSV puts quotation marks in 1 Corinthians. Why don't they do it here? Um, Anti-Semitism? I mean, that's one reason. One reason is, is that this 18 through 32 has been taken as a summary of what Jews believe for a long time. So that Paul is talking about all the Jews, and then in chapter 2, he's uh, he's talking about all the Gentiles, and then in chapter 3, he says, you're both screwed, you both need Jesus. Like, in that way, is Paul saying it, but he's saying it about the Jews, or it's like a quote from all of the Jews? Yeah. Um, it, it would be like... It would be like if I did this, if I said, um, you know, people are saying more and more 
this is the best class, really. But why, why do you need to say that? The only people who talk about it being the best class are people who are deeply insecure that there are classes that are better than that. People who teach the best classes don't need to brag about it's the best class. They just teach a good class. So what I'm doing there is I'm presenting a statement and then saying why, actually, if you had the best class, you wouldn't need to tell everyone. Like Beyonce doesn't go around saying I'm the best performer. Or, I don't know, Taylor Swift, if you will. Sorry, Nickelback. <laughs> You're welcome. So, so like, it's it's that kind of argumentation. So Paul, Paul then is, is summarizing an argument, I, I think, because of the language and the theology that are foreign to Paul, but not foreign to Philo. Summarizing an argument to show it's not true in order to present his gospel as better than it, and also, and do pastoral theology in that way, but also then to demonstrate his skill as a theologian and an order. Just a yeah. So you're saying that the reason not to put tension is because that can be a slippery slope that how can we then cost an entire interpretation? Yeah. That that's like that was part of my answer. So part of the answer is there's an anti-Semitic tradition that Jews are like this, that we just all live in. Like I've lived in that, right? Ever all of a sudden that. Um, part of it is that there there hasn't been sufficient scholarship about how uh, diatribe or diaphragmia works. So what are the key, what are the in-text cues to what's happening? What are the what are the grammatical lexical cues that Paul is having a dialogue? That that work by most Bible translators just isn't done, hasn't been done. Additionally, the work on Philo is pretty new. Like having access to some of these writings is fairly new, and the scholarship that shows the the comparative overlap here is is pretty new. So those are those. I mean, more expanded answers that this is like newer scholarship that's just sort of getting to there. Um, yeah. I offer a third op option, maybe. Sure. Yeah. Um, so do Western audiences quotation marks signal that something is a direct quote, and when you have little clips in Corinthians that Paul's responding to, they yeah. probably were direct quotes. Like if I was using some kind of American saying. Yeah. I mean, to keep it the Donald Trump thing, I could put like build that wall in quotation marks because that's like something that the medication would literally yeah. say. But I wouldn't put, you know, your your speech a minute ago in quotation marks because that's not something that he literally said. It's the the the, the parody is the style, not like responding to something yeah. that he said. So I don't know if it'd even be appropriate to still put these in quotation marks because it's not a philonic quote. He's yes. taking the whole idea. Step yeah, John, that's a good makes it difficult for us, but to me it makes that's a good that's a good point. Possible. Yeah, that's a good point. Um yeah, that's a good point. I think the quotation marks are are more too about like Paul says in First Corinthians, now about the things you've wrote. Like he's indicating that he's going to be responding to specific things they've talked about. Oh, yeah. Which I think then it also makes it more appropriate for quotation marks around well, where is where is Paul? naming what they wrote, and then responding to it. 
I guess like my other pillow question would be because I don't know if this very well, but like how did like the early church teach this because they would actually probably have a better understanding than we do since mm -hmm. we're so far mm -hmm. Were they interpreting it in this kind of new way that we're interpreting it? And then how do you resolve that if like the early church was actually teaching it there? Yep. And they were closer to that kind of original understanding than this kind of like new stuff that Yep. Yep. Uh can you type that? Can you type that in there? But Andrew just asked a really good question. Um so I did I debated on Andrew, I debated on going into the complications of how the church fathers and mothers read scripture, because they rarely asked the question, what was Paul doing? That wasn't a they didn't care, they didn't really care about that. Um, so for instance, I'm just thinking of origin. Origen acknowledges in his commentary on Romans that Paul seems to be presenting an argument that he disagrees with. But he's more concerned in using Romans apologetically to argue against heresy. So he's so what he does with Romans would like scandalize us in a way, because he's not really. He's not being like, here's what Paul intended. Here's Paul's context. He doesn't do this work because he doesn't care. He's doing different work. He's doing apologetic work. So how do I counter these heretics? He's also doing what's known as like a spiritual reading of the scriptures. So he'll kind of do more of a Christian midrash where he'll read a text and then use his imagination to draw theological conclusions from that. That would probably not get you a good grade in seminary today. And and I don't want to judge that. I think part of how we read the Bible is contextual and cultural. And Origen was doing something that was completely fine in his day that we wouldn't appreciate as much in our day to day. Leah, you want to add to that? Yeah, and Origen is also in Alexandria where the Bible was very much part of this, uh, the same tradition yeah. um, of reading scripture out or um, putting it in dialogue with the classical world and reading yeah yeah and um, that's just origin though andrew i'd have to look go and look at other people but i think in general um like context and purpose of the author are more important to us than a lot of the early church fathers and mothers because they read in more in an allegorical spiritual way and that's just not as appealing to us it's not as doesn't answer our questions the way it answers their questions yeah isaiah um sort of like the whole meta question or just thought is like uh I can totally buy everything that, like, you know, I've heard a lot of these things before, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. This isn't like, these are, a lot of scholars have recognized this. They haven't known how to put it together. So a lot of scholars recognize, oh, this this isn't all the Jews. Paul's, Paul's setting up an argument to tear it down, but they haven't known where the argument comes from. And they haven't been able to figure out why is he doing this? It, and so, but then, and then also too, it's like, Sorry, Isaiah. This, this, no, so like in the book of Job, like Job's friends are arguing about God works according to what we hear in Deuteronomy. If you do good things, good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. 
bad things are happening to you, so you must have done bad things. And Job's like, but that's not how it's worked. And it's like 40 chapters of Job saying, of Job's friends saying, but Deuteronomy, and Job saying, I know, but, right? That kind of thing, we, that kind of thing is happening there. And I think the same kind of thing is happening here, except not in a Hebrew kind of Aramaic way, more in a Greek, Greco-Roman way, and how they do dialogue or diatribe to get at to get at truth. Same kind of rhetorical device. Yeah, um, I think what the turns up for me is like uh, I, I can file this as next time. It's it feels like a lot to get here, mm -hmm. and you know. I know you do Latin, right? In college, and this is like normal media, but also like this is I think they'll get really good work to get here. Yep. If that makes sense. And I don't trust my own ability like at all to get here. And I guess it makes you wonder, like, you know, this is about the shirt. Yeah. My answer would be to work Um yeah. and it makes me also wonder about like how we use her for like we're just like reading it out there. Textless format is every every right, and like if we read this, like four percent of us would have thought, ah, it's a character, and it would be yeah, especially not yeah. Right? It just makes I, I just have all these questions. I had these questions part of the yeah, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, anyway, you can go to break. Sorry, yeah. yeah, yeah. Isaiah's question is like, how does this? help us at all to get more confident when we read scripture and not just move on. <laughs> Make us despair. Yeah. I, so, yeah. I mean, there's so many ways to respond to that question, Isaiah. I, I truly think the scriptures are inspired and that God speaks to us in spite of our limited understandings all the time. All the time. Um, and I'm not even, I, I said this the first two weeks, but I'm holding this out as like, Hey, let's explore this together. This is fun. Not as like, you have to believe this. I, I just, I think it's compelling because it doesn't create the problems that the first two options create. And it actually does a great synthesis of some things. And I think it helps us respond to anti-Semitic and problems with the way the gospel is preached based upon some anti-Semitic assumptions. Um, so for me, it's like, oh, this solves a problem. This is fun to think about. But I also, to your point, don't want to give the impression that um, there's no spiritual benefit to reading scripture if you haven't read 120,000 words of Philo. Right? That's not. So this is the crux here, right? I think the reformers talked about the plain reading of scripture and the perspic perspicuity of scripture. And I, I, I actually... The way that they meant that, they just were reading their own biases under the text and then saying it's a plain reading, right? And so I think it's good for us to take a second to be like, what have we assumed about this that isn't true? And how do we recover something that maybe helps us, right? And doing that with, uh, doing that like full, you know, clear-eyed in a way that like this problematizes things for us. Like, you know, I just read this kind of straightforward and assumed, assumed all this was Paul's style. This is what usually happens. Assumes all this is Paul's theology, right? And then we kind of mash it up together at the end of Romans. And, you know, once uh, once every eight years for six weeks, 
new problem with that. Maybe the whole process, yeah. It's not that you have to solve it for yourself. But maybe a large Yes, I, I do feel that and I appreciate that. I think what immediately comes out of me is like, but until, you know, or until a uh, match participation comes out, they need some way to done it wrong. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. like as a community, right? Or like, all the time, or even like the inspiration that we get from the user for filling the description of our from ways or I don't know, like I'm not at all saying that. Clearly I don't <laughs> yeah. um and I I agree with that it's inspired. I'm just like it's hard, I guess. Well and I agree with that it's how do we hold attention and on modern how do we know on modern interpretations and true mm -hmm. and is there true, you know. Is there even sort of interpret the scripture? Yeah. Yeah. And then, but as compared to like the patristic, some of the topics and yeah. the And then you leave, and then you have so many splinters, right? I've been listening to like a lot of different churches. How can you be confident in your individual interpretation? And like, how do you know that you can trust the church that you're going into? Yeah. All, right? Like, so I've been in churches, I've listened to them preach. I get very, like, I have questions. Where are your sources? Where are you getting this information? Yeah. Who are you citing? Because I'm like this. So I I understand the tension, and then I get overwhelmed to read the Bible as well because I'm like, and I say lost in theology. It's me that I know too much, but not Yeah, yeah. And so for me, when coming to this class, I was really curious more understanding how you read the Bible and preaches. Yeah. To kind of understand. And it kind of sounds like, you know, and again, this is just funny, like, it kind of depends on like, the culture and how the culture is using the Bible. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely have tension for that. It's hard to resolve. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I, I also feel that when you said I was getting described as like the specialist knowledge that you're bringing to to Romans is super helpful and I really like where it's going. And I also know that I don't have specialist knowledge. Yeah. Not a whole Bible to do that. Right. So, right. Um, and then there's also this question like, but this specialist knowledge is only very recently available. So um what about like I don't know. This may not be a relevant question, but it kind of feels irresponsible. Like, Bible is an inspired text. Like, it's out there for 2,000 years. The interpretive key came out 20 years ago. Like, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah, Liam. That's great. Um, maybe to wrap up, one of the things that helps me navigate this, because, um, you know, I've I've been preaching and teaching the Bible for 25 years. And I've just been reading this dissertation for a month. So, like... You know, and James talks about teachers will be judged more harshly. So, like, I get this tension, right? I, I get this thing. Um, I, I do think that our faith is based upon a person who's risen from the dead, not on the correct interpretation of Romans 1. And so, one of the reasons we emphasize like 
taking love seriously and centering our community around love is because I think that I think that we've all we've discovered like we have the revelation of love in Jesus Christ and we gather around that love in his resurrection power by the spirit and that's the righteousness that God desires and then we work out from them so the foundation then isn't like on getting every verse right the foundation is on a person who's risen from the dead and the love the new creation community that that person creates in love that then lets us explore like how does this teaching line up with philo and other so that the foundation isn't so so for me i think it's an epistemological or a, an ontological sort of question about i do think that they're you know, again, like you said, Andrew, due to like cultural, contextual things, like a modernist, enlightenment, rationalistic kind of frame, we ground our being in epistemologies. How do I know this is true? And scriptures talk about a different epistemology. Like in First Corinthians 8, the text I quoted, it talks about the difference between knowing things and being loved by God. And the true knowledge that God requires is being loved by him versus knowing stuff, right? And I think that's the challenge that I, invitation I would extend to us all is pay attention to like how these, how exploring these things threaten us and then allow that to be an invitation to like a centered on something, um, on love, you know, which I think there is something knowable about that in a way of being loved is a way of knowing and I, that could act, that that's not meant to minimize that because I feel that too, I feel that a lot, even as I teach this class. Uh, yeah, Daniel, and then probably. Thank you. Yeah, I, I need to hear that too. Uh, one final comment and then I'll pray and we'll have to go. You, you good? All right. So <clears throat> take care of yourself. And that's like, I want I want this to be something that's inviting and encouraging and fun to think about um, rather than, you know, debilitating. So let me pray. God, thanks for this time. Uh, as we prepare our hearts now to move into Eucharist, <clears throat> we do ask for uh, this knowledge uh, of your love and uh, loving and being loved to make its home in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for joining us online.